Please take a seat. Kids, in the life of a kid, I think there is probably one question that is more important than any other. What is mine and what is yours? Parents, we know that there's a lot of teaching that happens based around that question. Whose toy is that? Whose turn is that? Who had it first? How long do I have it for and do I have to share it? God says that if something is ours, we need to think about whether or not we are taking responsibility for it. It's important when something is ours. We call that stewardship. Because God is the one who can really say everything in the universe is actually his. Anything that is actually yours is given to you by God to look after. Your parents have things to look after. The government has things that they have to look after. Kids, do you have anything that it is your job from God to look after? But there are some things that are not your responsibility, and they're not your parents' responsibility, and they're not the government's responsibility. There are some things that belong just to God. How do we know what those things are? Jesus says one way you can know what belongs to God is by asking, what has God put his image on? Kids, what did God make in his image? He made you in his image. You belong to God, to worship him, to love him, to have joy that could only come from God. If you were made to belong to God, then that is where you belong. That is where you are going to find the most joy. Jesus died and rose again so that you could have the joy of working the way you were meant to as someone who belongs to God. And that is where you are going to find what you were made for, living to worship and praise him. Let's see how Jesus teaches that in our passage this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Go with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Mark 12, 13 to 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is God's word. 
Now, we know that at this point, as we're nearing the end of Mark, Jesus' opponents have become pretty mad and pretty desperate. Jesus has openly condemned them, and they look at all of these crowds that are following him and flocking to him, and they are afraid that Jesus is going to turn the people against them. They are angry and afraid enough to want Jesus killed. But... Jesus' opponents are afraid of losing the goodwill of the crowds, and they know that if they challenge Jesus directly, that could likely lose them a number of followers, a great deal of popularity. So what they really, really, really want to happen is for Jesus to incriminate himself. That would be best, either to the crowds or to the Romans, because both would be consequential. That would get them what they wanted. So, they come up with a brilliant question that they hope is going to accomplish one or the other. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Geniuses. They're so proud of this question. Jesus, if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, that is lawful. He's going to upset a massive number of people who are following him, particularly the zealots, but many people who are very upset about Roman rule. Many people who thought that the main task of the Messiah was going to be to overthrow the Romans. But if he answered no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar. Well, here the Romans are going to see a man with crowds of people following him who says it is wrong to submit to Rome. And now he's going to look like he's leading an uprising. They think that this is the perfect test for Jesus. One, that he can only fail. There are no right answers to this question. That's our first point here is putting Jesus to the test. Now, Luke's account tells us that these Pharisees and Herodians who came to Jesus came as spies. Now, if they'd come openly, it would, it would be likely that their hypocrisy would have been evident to everyone. It's, most people knew at this point the Pharisees did not like Jesus. But they come disguised, hoping that this inquiry will look genuine. And to add to this illusion, they introduce the question with a compliment. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, there are likely two reasons for paying Jesus this false compliment beyond just trying to hide their identity. First, because they thought that this compliment would help to trap Jesus. Introduce a tough question by saying, oh, Jesus, you'd never give in to popular opinion. We know that about you. You would never say something just because you were worried of what people might think of you, would you? Now, this means that Jesus has to tell them what he really feels. If he, if he tries to evade, if he tries not to answer, well, then people are going to start to wonder. Maybe this guy is nervous about what people think. Maybe he is afraid to speak the truth. And if everybody thinks that Jesus is avoiding a difficult answer, they're going to think that his answer was the one that they didn't like. Perfect. The other reason for paying a compliment, of course, is that flattery disarms people. Flattery is the way to get someone to do what you want. When somebody compliments me, the first thing my heart thinks is, wow, this person is not only honest, but also keenly perceptive. <laughs> so we are prone to trust people who say good things about us. We think they're the people who most understand what's going on. And then we become careless and we start to speak without thinking 
around the people who we think are just going to find everything that we say fantastic. It becomes easy for us to be led astray. J.C. Ryle reminds us that flattery is as much a tool of the devil as persecution. There are times when seductive speech will do far more damage than dangers and threats ever will. Some of the most foolish acts in the world and in the church have been committed by people who surrounded themselves with people who only spoke well of them. I think we know that that is true. So let us all beware of flattery and let us become wise to the difference between flattery and encouragement. That can sometimes be difficult to sort out, can't it? Learn to ask when you are complimented. Why am I being complimented? Is this person trying to encourage me to hold to what is good? Or are they trying to disarm me? Is it for their own benefit that they are complimenting me? Or is it that they genuinely want to exhort me in what is good, glorify God, and help his church by encouraging me in what they see I am doing well? This takes wisdom to know flattery from encouragement. Jesus, however, can see through their flattery quite clearly. And he knows that these men are hypocrites. He knows that this question was just another attempt to trap him. Now, over the next three Sundays, we will see Jesus face three questions. And that reminds us of what we learned a couple of weeks ago when Jesus was first questioned. God loves good questions. You might remember we learned that. Bring any question you have. He wants to answer it. But beware of questions being asked by people who are not looking for the truth. Questions can be tactics to oppose the truth. There are no bad questions, but there can be bad motives for questions. When Jesus heard another question from the Pharisees two weeks ago, remember they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? He didn't answer it. He posed a question to them, exposed their folly, and explained why he was not going to answer their question. And yet, in our story today, he does answer their question. Even though he knows it is not sincere. Why does he do that? Well, you'll remember the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 26, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. When you put these two verses together, we see that a wise person needs to know when to answer a foolish question and when not to. So why does Jesus decide to answer now? We should not just assume that Jesus is showing off his wisdom. Look at Jesus. He's like some intellectual Houdini where you can get him trapped in this problem and then he can get out of it and everybody's amazed. It goes without saying that Jesus is demonstrating incredible wisdom here. That Jesus' wisdom is demonstrating that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. His poor opponents have come to shame him and they can't help but be amazed at his answer. They set up what they did think was the perfect trap for him. And they marvel at his wisdom. But we must remember, they did not marvel unto salvation. They were not amazed unto repenting and trusting in Jesus. We cannot save someone by proving we're smarter than them. We cannot save someone simply by having answers to their arguments. 
That is always a caution that we have to remember in things like evangelism and apologetics. You cannot intellectually trounce someone into the kingdom of God because there is a work that the Holy Spirit must do to a dead and hardened heart if they are to believe in Christ. Even the wisdom of Jesus will leave them hardened apart from God's saving grace. So when Jesus does answer their questions, we can understand this is not primarily for the sake of the men asking the question. The Pharisees and the Herodians deliberately focused on this issue because they knew that this issue troubled many people in Jesus' day. There were many people who sincerely wanted to know the answer to this question. But before he answers, Jesus makes sure to say, why put me to the test? Jesus makes sure that no one thinks he is dignifying foolishness. He makes sure to expose their hypocrisy. But then he deems it is wise to give an answer. Jesus asks for a coin called a denarius. This was the coin that would have been used to pay the Roman tax. And he says, whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? And they answer that it is Caesar's. At the time, the reigning Caesar would have been Tiberius. And inscribed around his face, the denarius would say, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Like many kings before them, the Caesars tried to claim their own divinity as grounds for why they ought to be obeyed. Most conquering nations under Rome didn't have much of a problem with this. Rome wanted their gods and their Caesars put in the pantheon among those idols they already worshipped, and that was fine. Just throw them in there, and we'll make sure to pray to them as well. But that doesn't work if you worship the one true God, maker of heaven and earth. It doesn't work if you worship the God who said, you will have no other gods before me, and you will not make for yourself an idol. That was part of the concern in Jesus' day. That was why this was an urgent question for many people. Was it wrong to accept the rule of the emperor who thought that he was divine? Was that a betrayal of God's law? Was it a betrayal of God's promises that the household of David would rule over his people, that the Messiah would rule to accept Caesar, to accept his puppets like Herod, to pay taxes to them? Was ta paying taxes breaking God's law? God's law did include a tax that was meant to be given for the sake of the temple. Was paying other taxes to foreign governments a betrayal of that law? The Jews were fiercely divided over answers to these questions. Political parties like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots, all of them had very different views on what to do about Rome. So you can appreciate how electric this question would have been when it was asked in Jesus' day. Now, you might feel that asking about the church's relationship to the government is still a very controversial question to bring up in polite society. <laughs> On this side of COVID mandates and restrictions and various protests, American elections, even kind of Canadian elections, we care a little bit about those as well. All of these wars, they remind us that this issue is a prominent one in the Christian life. So Jesus' response here remains very important and relevant for us. So holding up the coin, Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Our second point is this, rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. When God created and designed the world, 
as its ruler and king. He gave humanity a mandate, rule over the earth, exercise dominion, subdue it. Human government is a legitimate way that this mandate is carried out. After the fall, one of the powers of human government was to carry the sword of justice. That means carrying out temporal, earthly justice to promote good and to punish evil. In the law of Moses, God lays out certain laws that are meant to be carried out by the human government. That was Moses and Joshua, and then it was judges, and after that it was kings. Now, eventually, as punishment for their ongoing sin, God's people were taken over by foreign empires. When Babylon took over Judah and carried them into exile, Jeremiah gave a message to the conquered Jews. It is not wrong for you to seek the good of the city into which you have been taken. God made it possible for his people to live under the reign of non-believing governments. Daniel and his friends were an excellent example of this. Our passage from Daniel this morning tells us what Daniel and his friends' role was. They advised the king. They gave the king wisdom. They worked for the good of the Babylonian empire, for the kings who thought that they were divine, who worshipped wicked gods. And it says that Daniel fulfilled this role until the, the first year of Cyrus. He fulfilled this role even as the empire kept changing. So he moved from Babylonian power to the power of the Medes and the Persians. They served men who rejected God. They served men with divine delusions. This same relationship remained true after the Jews were brought back to their land. It was not wrong for them to trust that these foreign kings were in God's hands, and then they could honor them in whatever way they possibly could. This is consistent with Jesus answering about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He is providing a gift to the troubled consciences of many of these Jews. It is not wrong for them to accept that Caesar is the one currently reigning over them in government. Caesar is currently the one entrusted with the sword in Israel. Paul offers a similar help to his Christian readers in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, this lesson is freeing in a way. We are not bound as Christians to overthrow governments. Our goal as believers is not to be kingmakers or rebels. We can honor and support even the worldly authorities that are in place, knowing that God is sovereign over them. Paul even applies this to taxes. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This does not mean that we don't want our leaders to govern in a way that aligns with God's good moral law. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all the people, for kings and all who are in high places, that we would lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. 
It is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. As Christians, it is right for us to want good government, to desire that. A government whose rule would be conducive with the spread of the gospel. Daniel's advice to the king of Babylon would always have accorded with the wisdom of God. That's why he was ten times wiser than all the magicians of Babylon. He would have given the king God's good wisdom, and everything that Daniel would have said would have worked for the good of the righteous and the good of God's people. It's not wrong for us to pursue similar good means of working to that end. However, even when the government rejects that wisdom, there are still things which it is appropriate to render to them. There is an obedience, a deference, a contribution that can be claimed by the government to carry out the mandate which God himself has given them, even if they don't know that they got that mandate from God. One question that often then follows is this. When do we know that a government is legitimate? If an invader takes over Canada tomorrow, do they immediately become our legitimate government and we need to start paying taxes to them? That is a good question. Now, in the case of Rome, Jesus shows that this question was already settled. Why was a denarius easy to come by? Because a denarius was already the currency being used in Israel. People were trading with it. People were making use of it. They were already making use of Rome's government structure. They were already submitting to it. If they were already operating as though Rome was their legitimate government, then they could not reject paying the taxes that Rome acquired. Now, governments are not the only authorities which God has instituted. The Ten Commandments say children are to obey their parents. Husbands are giving authority in their households. Elders have authority in the church. All of these are good roles established by God for the sake of the flourishing of his people, for the sake of carrying out God's mandate in a righteous and God-glorifying way. So, we can ask as we read this, what is due to be rendered to parents? What is due to be rendered to husbands, to elders? Just like we ask what is due to the government. We're asking when we say that, what is the jurisdiction of each of these authorities which God has put in place? We can't pick apart all of those jurisdictions today, but Jesus does lay the foundation for addressing that question by insisting that some things do not belong to Caesar. They don't belong to anything, anyone else. They belong to God alone. And that is our third point. Rendering to God the things that are God's. Now, you might think Jesus gave a clear example of what's to be rendered to Caesar when he held up the denarius, but he did not mention what belonged to God. But how did he demonstrate what belonged to Caesar? He asked to look for Caesar's likeness. How do we know what belongs to God? We start by asking, where do we see his likeness? Where do we see his image? The church father Tertullian of Carthage says, render to Caesar what are Caesar's and to God's and what are God's to God. That is the image of Caesar, which is on the coin to Caesar and the image of God, which is on man to God. So as to render to Caesar indeed money and to render to God even yourself. The government has certain claims they can make of you. They do, but they do not own you. God is the one to whom you belong. 
He is the one who tells us to obey the government. That is why we do so. So its power is not absolute. They do not have a right to direct every part of your life. Nor are they free to contradict God in areas even where they do have responsibility. While Jesus did say it is not a sin to pay taxes to Caesar, he is clearly rejecting any divine claim that was written upon that coin and insisting that it would be a sin to treat Caesar as God alone ought to be treated. We also see this in the stories of Daniel, don't we? Even as Daniel was willing and ready to honor the king of Babylon, to help him in any way that he could to be respectful for him, in any case where Daniel saw that an obligation to the king of Babylon would conflict with his obligation to God, he didn't waver for a moment. Daniel was steadfast. He immediately knew what to do. His friends were willing to be thrown in a fiery furnace before they bowed down to an idol. Daniel was willing to be devoured by lions rather than to pray to anyone other than God. These men were eager to work for the good of the city in which they found themselves, but not for a moment would they give to the king or any man what they would only give to God. So, do you know to whom you belong? Do you know who ultimately has a claim on you and your life and your choices your worship? Do you know the one who will get your whole heart and mind and strength, your worship, your ultimate trust? Now, many people want to belong to themselves. That is who they think owns them. They reject authority because it's authority. How dare they? They hate to think that anyone would have a claim on them, that they would have a duty to anyone apart from the duty they have to themselves. I am the master of my own destiny. So they hate authority even for doing the things that they are responsible to do. God tells us to reject any real authority is to reject him because you are rejecting what he has put in place, what he sees as good. You have exchanged the mandate of God for chaos. But we can also make a lesser authority than God total in our lives in a way that it was not meant to be. Maybe we do this because we idolize the author that authority itself. We just think Caesar is so fantastic. Emperor Tiberius is such a great guy that we've got to do everything that he says because he knows what's what. But more often than that, it is because... We fear that authority. We believe that that authority controls the things that we love, the things that we want, the things that we need. They have in their hand what we are afraid to lose. And so we are going to do whatever they say for the sake of their idols. It's not that we love them individually. It's that we love what we think they can give us. If our deepest desire is that we would live easy, comfortable lives in this world, then we just might yield everything to the government because we think that they are the ones with the power to give that to us. We could do the same thing with parents, with a spouse, with elders. We could defer to them even when they would demand that we go against what God says because we know that, deferring, that, that going against them would just be too costly for us. The Pharisees' core problem was not that they loved Rome. They were not the Herodians. They were willing to work with them, which already exposed their foolishness. But the, Herod the Pharisees were not a super pro-Roman party. 
It was that they didn't love God. Their hearts were consumed with idols. They needed wealth. They needed popularity. They needed position. They needed comfort. And going against Rome would have likely cost them those things. So, when they saw clear evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, that to follow him was to follow God, they rejected him. And in less than a week's time after this conversation, they are going to stand in front of Caesar's representative, Pontius Pilate, and they are going to call for Jesus' persecution. And Pilate is going to say, shall I crucify your king? And they will answer, we have no king but Caesar. Now, I don't think these guys understood that they were giving away the game when they said that. I don't think they thought of all the implications of what they were saying in that moment. They weren't just rejecting the Messiah. They were rejecting God even as they themselves would have claimed to know and worship God. What they betrayed was that ultimately, Caesar had all their idols in his hand. And so Caesar was the only king who mattered to them. As I said, what is important to render to Caesar is still obviously a hot topic. But before we can properly explore the ins and outs of that question, we must ask the more fundamental question. Have you settled in your heart to render only to God the things that belong to God? You will never be able to really consider what is due to a government or anyone else unless you have submitted your heart to the absolute lordship of God. You know that he is your king. You know that your life belongs to him. When we do that, we can come back to the question, how do we honor other authorities? What does it mean to obey our parents? What is the wisdom of elders that we should follow? What ought we render to the government? What is due to my boss? Now, we are not going to desire to rebel against them, nor will we desire simply to defer to whoever has what we want. Our deepest desire now is to honor God. I want to glorify him. I want to show what a good king he is in the way that I treat all the authorities that he has put in place. Listen to how Peter instructs his readers to honor Caesar and human institutions. This is in 1 Peter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing so, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. Who do you fear? Fear God alone. We reverence him as the real creator and ruler of the universe, the one who has real power over it, the one who has a real claim on us. And when we trust in Christ, we declare that we will belong to God like we were made to. Now we give our lives, our hearts, our choices, all of that. We live to be his servants and his alone. And it is with reverent fear for only God as his servants that now we can honor the emperor. 
we can honor the emperor's servants and every person as it is due to them. We're not afraid of them. Our hearts need nothing from them. They cannot give us anything that lasts. They have no idols that we demand. God has freed us. The servants of God are free from that bondage, which makes us fear men. And now we have the simple, delightful goal of assessing every interaction and relationship by asking, how can I honor and obey my Lord? How sweet it is that the God who is the true Lord of creation is the king that sets you free. He is the good king. He lets you walk free from the idols that have bound you in slavery to walk in righteousness. No human leader has showed themselves worthy of that kind of hope and trust. None are strong enough. None are capable enough. None are wise enough. But we have a God who is infinitely wise and is infinitely powerful. He will never rule corruptly. He will always act in absolute justice. And there is good reason to fear that king. That king who has the power and the wisdom and the good justice to punish every transgression perfectly. But this is the king who is also gracious, who has extended love and mercy even to offer his only begotten son to bear that punishment of enemies so that we who trust in Jesus can walk free. And doesn't that make him a better king than any ruler who has ever been or will ever be? He makes a way through his only begotten son to satisfy justice, to offer grace and mercy even to his enemies, to make us into faithful citizens of God, his children, his servants. And through Jesus, we know what he is continuing to do. He is even now bringing about an eternal kingdom of peace and righteousness where all that belongs to God will be rightly rendered to God. And in offering this to God, we will delight in what we were made for and receive our greatest joy. If you have rebelled against the authority of God, then wave the white flag. Surrender. Look at the idols that are keeping you from giving to God what is God's, that make you so terrified of people in your life, authorities in this world. Surrender. Render those things to him. Even yourself. Ask yourself, is there any person or power that you are more afraid of than God at this moment? That if they were to challenge what was true and good, what God loved, that you do not think that you would stand. Surrender that to God as well. In Christ, he is offering you a hope that no one in this world can take. He is offering you a joy that they could not touch even in your worst moments. And he is offering you a place in an eternal kingdom that could never, ever be removed. No other king deserves your praise. No other king has made promises to you like that. Render to him yourself and let us rest in the kingdom 
of our King forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for being the good King, the true King, the best King. We praise you for sending Jesus, your only begotten Son, to die in our place so that we might be brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. We thank you that Jesus is himself enthroned over his church. I pray, Father, that you would help all of us in our heart of hearts to confront those idols that we fear to lose, to confront those people that we fear, whether it is our family and friends and neighbors or whether it is the most powerful government in this world. I pray, Father, that we would know that you are the only one who deserves to be feared and you deserve our praise as well. And thank you that the best king is the one who invites us to be in his kingdom. I pray, Father, that we would all not rest until we are safe and secure in the kingdom of Jesus by trusting in him, and that as soon as we are, we would rest and rest eternal. I pray in his name. Amen.